Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Joining us, of course, is Chris Aylman. He is our co-host for Bloomberg Markets. He is the chief investment officer. That's his day job of uh, the California State Teachers Retirement System, helping to manage more than $228 billion. Chris, you know, when we talk about billions and, you know, how much money people make, do you wake up in the morning thinking, oh, my gosh, that's a lot of money? Or does the number really matter to you in the sense of what you have to do on a day-to-day basis? I mean, would you behave and operate, you know, whether it was $100 million or $2 billion, not $228 billion? No, it's a staggering number, and I am in awe all the time. Uh, I've been uh, the CIO at CalSTRS for over 17 years, so obviously that long you do tend to get used to things, but I am still... um, just very surprised and in awe when the portfolio moves up or down a billion dollars or two billion dollars in a day. And I would operate differently if I had one billion. Uh, I could be more nimble. Uh, pick, you know, I often use the expression, you've got to think of us at, at 225 billion. We're like a giant cruise ship in the ocean. The board has picked a dot on the horizon, which is 7%, and we aim for it. And as we inch closer to the horizon, like a horizon, it just keeps extending. So we're out to sea forever. We're never coming into port. So I can't spin on a dime. Um, I know those ships had side thrusters, but they can't use them in the open ocean. So uh, I'm not, <laughs> you know, if I was at, well, but if I was at Yale or if I was at uh, University of Texas, I might be a lot more nimble. I would overweight certain asset classes. At my size and scale, I just can't. So it weighs on us. To put it uh, in numbers, every July 1st, when we wake up, that's the beginning of our year, we have to make $15 billion of profit from the start of the year. And that number is staggering. But it's a marathon. And the minute we finish a mile, you know what? There's another mile ahead of us. So, Chris, I'm struck by also the amount of money, the nearly $230 billion uh, that you manage. And I think about as we head into the anniversary of Lehman's collapse, how much money has shifted from the banks to the asset management industry and with pensions, uh, with their assets exploding. And I have to wonder, you know, how concerned are you or how confident are you about the oversight of all of the asset management industry and the pension industry with respect to risks building there and potential systemic problems emerging there outside of the banks? Well, you know, I think in this town, the word Dodd-Frank is a dirty word, but I actually think it's been very positive. Uh, I like the banks, the fact that the banks have stress tests from the Fed. Uh, You have to keep in mind that for 150 years, the brokerage firms were generally eight to maybe 12 times leverage on their balance sheet. Then in 2006 and seven, they suddenly went to 40 times leverage. That's what we had to pay attention to, and that's what the average consumer had no visibility of the risk that was suddenly being put on the books. Um, I think the system uh, is actually operating very well. Should it be more regulated? Oh, there's some key areas, as we mentioned earlier. I think the fiduciary uh, rules should be put in place um, for retail. 
But I think uh, overall, the pension industry is actually steadily improving and doing better all the time. Um, I think uh, from a, a broad picture standpoint, there are a lot of opportunities. Um, the baby boomers are tiring. Uh, Generation X and, and obviously the millennials are coming into position. They need to be saving more for retirement. And that's an absolutely huge issue because the average worker in the USA is protected by a 401k and most don't have a big enough balance. So there are looming risks on the horizon, but I think we're in a good place uh, for continued growth. And and when it comes to the risk of the investment portfolio, I think we're actually, Lisa, I think we're fairly balanced. We've got a good blend of, uh, yes, we're heavily exposed to, to global equities, but we've got a good balance of other uh, stocks, real estate, uh, fixed income, uh, private equity, other opportunities. I think the most profound change we've seen since 2008 is the number of companies, public companies, uh, that have gone private and stayed private. So there are fewer publicly traded companies in the marketplace today than there were back then. And the huge volume that we've seen, uh, the banks have gotten out of the private debt business. And we've seen really uh, long-term investors come in and fill that. That's not necessarily a bad thing, uh, but it certainly is something to watch. Uh, private debt transactions have more covenants, which is a good thing, um, but it still is something to keep an eye on because of the amount of money chasing the, the uh, debt transactions. Chris Hellman, when you were attending UC Santa Barbara, did you ever think that you would be in the role you are now? No. Uh, I point out uh, we have a mentoring program where we have uh, student interns come in uh, every summer, and we had some that were shadowing me last week, and I pointed out that uh, my job did not exist when I went to school. Um, so that may be true for them as well. Don't necessarily study one specific thing, uh, but be a, a, a broad spectrum of education and learn about a lot of things. Uh, I knew I wanted to be, oddly enough, coming from California, I wanted to be involved in Wall Street and in finance, um, not a popular thing on the, on the West Coast. Yeah, I was going to say, UC Santa Barbara, I can't imagine that there were a huge cohort of uh, individuals like you. Yeah, the, the Wall Street Journal did reach there, but it was not, uh, I think it was still a day late by the time <laughs> I got there. They, they sold it over on State Street. You could just there you bicycle go. over there. But, you know, it, 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 I think it gave you perspective. You're not uh, locked onto Manhattan and everything that goes on and all the emotion. You can look at it from afar. I actually like managing money on the West Coast. You have to realize that we're off time zones. So the, the U.S. equity market is opening at the crack of, of dawn, basically at 630 in the morning, and it's closed by one. Um, and Lisa, as she knows, and Pim, that's when I go for bike rides. Yeah, least. indeed. Uh, and it gives me a chance. I listen to Bloomberg Radio, so I'll plug for <laughs> you guys. And one of the things I do is really that way it gives me a broader perspective to look at, to step away from the day-to-day -day noise and look at the broad trends. Because I think when you're doing retirement planning, you've got to think longer term. I'm just wondering, and you talked about sort of the rational aspect of managing money and looking at the finances. Do you worry, especially given the rhetoric uh, that we're experiencing politically, especially with trade, that we're moving away from looking at just sort of uh, a capitalistic financial outlook of what makes sense and going towards something different? Well, I think Yes, because this is a prolonged bull market. Obviously, you know we're nine and a half years into this bull market. Bull markets, as we know, typically don't die of old age. They die of an event or some occurrence. Trade is one of those things. Uh, one of the things I do for the board is 
in essence, go up into the crow's nest, look at the horizon and identify for them the risks that I see, the storms brewing. And uh, this trade skirmish battle is definitely one of them. Uh, to pick fights with Mexico and Canada, it's good that the U.S. has a stronger negotiating stance, but we're doing it in the typical real estate style where we throw the keys at the bank and threaten to walk away from the transaction. I don't think that's an effective uh, strategy when it comes to, to global diplomacy. We're an interlinked global economy. And so, as you've heard from companies, we can't just pick fights with our trading partners. And this skirmish that's going on with China really is a significant thing to watch. Uh, it is a huge risk. China's the number two largest economy. It is the biggest part of the emerging markets. Uh, it's going to affect uh, us in numbers of ways. So, those are the types of things that I'm worried about. Uh, I, I was concerned starting this year, coming up on this 10-year anniversary, how investors would react. And I have to say they're surprisingly resilient. Um, but we know the downside uh, is quick. The old adage, uh, Wall Street climbs the stairs, but it goes down the elevator. Um, I'm constantly worried about uh, hedging the portfolio for what might be something we're not foreseeing that would cause the market to, to trade off. As we saw in January, uh, in early February, it will do it quick. And people often forget when you look back at 2008, the destruction in the market really occurred about over 100 calendar days. It was very fast. Um, and not that we would do that again, but I think that uh, uh, you've got to be balanced in your portfolio. You can't just be all long stocks. I want to go back to something you mentioned briefly about mentors. And I'm wondering if there are other pension plans, maybe someone's listening, they're interested in getting into the business. Should they just write a letter to the head of the pension plan and say, look, I'd like to learn what you're doing, how you do it. Can I get involved in some way? Because that may not be a traditional, gee, I want to go and work there. I don't have the skills yet. But on the other hand, you're going to learn a lot from just being around. Oh, yeah. Well, I think I think just not the pension plan side, the buy side, as we call it in our industry lingo, uh, which is that we're the asset owners. So we're buying investment transactions rather than being on the sell side, which predominates Cor this correct. island. But I meant, for example, you know, previous to being at Calsters. So how do they were, get you in? You were, at Wash you were at yes. the Washington State Investment Board, correct. right? So the idea would be, okay, just write a blind letter, find out who's in charge, write a letter, explain why you're interested and you just never know because it's not a traditional, you know, it's not on your, necessarily on a list of things to do if you're looking to get into the business. I have been speaking to the business school at UC Davis, at Sac State. I've tried to be open to UC Santa Barbara, any of the schools, to go back and make them realize that if you want a job in investments, you don't have to be in Manhattan. You can work in Eugene, Oregon, You could or Salem, Oregon. You could yeah. work in Olympia, Washington. You could work in Sacramento, California. So I think that's been part of our program is to reach out and make them realize um, if you're on the buy side, you can be in a lot of different places. Uh, it's an exciting job. It's a unique opportunity. And you're right. You're going to learn about a wide variety of asset classes, not just be stuck in one narrow area. Is it still exciting in the world of indexing? Indexing, yes, because it's that beta exposure. You know, I think it's going to be interesting. There's a lot of debate about uh, indexing to what index, not to be wonky. But the fact that uh, it isn't just the broad uh, Russell 3000 or uh, MSCI index, people are now indexing to a wide variety of ESG indexes. 
um, getting off the cap-weighted structure. Yeah. So the definition of the market is constantly changing. I do have to wonder, I want to go back to the idea of fewer public companies and just quickly get your opinion. What do you think is the consequence of a move away from being public into private? Well, I, I, there's a huge consequence. Uh, obviously, your access to capital changes dramatically, and that's one of the things. In the past, there wasn't capital for the private markets, but now there are so many large institutions like ourselves that are willing to fund that. I think, in a way, we're fueling that interest in staying private. Um, obviously, we create a lot of rules and regulations on public companies. I think that's good, but it's weighed enough on CEOs you know, one of the requirements of Dodd-Frank was simply the requirement that a CEO sign off on their financial statements that they're accurate. I was shocked that so many people were up in arms about that. Uh, and, and yet we've had CEOs who say, well, I'd rather stay private so I don't have to do that. It's like, come on, you can't verify and, and attest to your financial statements. So people cry about many of the facets of Dodd-Frank. Maybe there needs to be some small adjustment, but I think it's actually proven to be a tremendous uh, safety net under the U.S. system. And I think there's, there's pros and cons to being public and to being private, but you're using other people's capital when you're public and they have to have a voice. Well done. Thanks for your voice. And we're going to be hearing more of it because you're going to stick around. We've got more with Chris Aylman. He is the chief investment officer for the California State Teachers Retirement System. Yes, helping to manage more than $225 billion. You're listening to Bloomberg. Right now, we are joined by, of course, Chris Aylman, who is our guest host uh, for today's show. He's Chief Investment Officer of the California State Teachers Retirement System in Sacramento, but he's here in our 1130 studios. And we are also very lucky to have Jim Anderson, Chief Executive Officer of Social Flow, here with us to talk about a very important topic as social media companies continue to come under scrutiny about the amount of information that they deliver, especially to advertisers. So just uh, bring us up to speed on... Uh, just sort of the dynamics that are affecting the advertising industry right now as they pertain to social media. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the problem is is that the tech companies are making a fortune, right? Facebook and Google uh, take the lion's share of digital advertising dollars, and, and they've got a brilliant business model that they don't have to pay to create any of the content, right? Companies like Bloomberg, BBC, CNN, you name it, media outlets create the content and, and ultimately are not benefiting from monetization. So we, everybody in the digital world knows this is the problem. What we're doing is taking the next logical step and in introducing a blockchain-based token to try to get the media companies better compensated for the content they create. What does that mean? <laughs> I have no what, a blockchain token. I understand. Well, I don't. Go ahead. You're going to enlighten us all. <laughs> well, it's great. I, I, I am as guilty as anybody of talking about things like distributed immutable ledgers, and that's just simply a terrible way to talk, right, about anything. So I'm carrying around. Obviously, your listeners can't see this book I'm holding, but it's just a little bound ledger, right? So think old school, right? The old bound ledger that you would find in the courthouse or that you would, uh, you know, a merchant would have. They okay. open it up. There's pages. They're sewn right. in. So you, you see if a page has been removed or added. The pages are numbered. You fill it out with indelible ink, and now you have a ledger of what's happened that's not necessarily forged proof but it's very fraud resistant I think that's what blockchain is in the digital world it gives you the ability to have sort of the equivalent of a bound ledger that you can actually put some degree of trust in 
All right. So, Chris, when you hear companies uh, engage blockchain, do you tune out? Do you get more interested? Or is it just another technology and a way of recording things? I mean, how do you sort of engage? No, I think blockchain has a, a definite, it's a tool of the future. Um, it's a software system that allows uh, a record keeping, and I think it has a place. My question um, is really, how do you make money? How do you compensate the media companies for their content? Are consumers going to pay for that? Uh, it's interesting. Advertisers, uh, you know, ultimately. So a a there are two ways you can do it. Exactly. Consumers and sort of think subscription businesses, wh whether you want to think about New York Times, Wall Street Journal, or even Netflix. I mean, th there's plenty of incentives to do that. The problem there we see as a share of wallet problem is everybody tries to get subscriptions. I mean, how many media companies can realistically get vibrant subscriber bases? So that's why we've landed on the advertising side. There's a, a long history of advertising-supported media. I mean, it's a, it's a multi-trillion dollar industry right now. And in the digital world in particular, the, that, that is sort of rife with a lack of trust, right? Lack of transparency, fraud, bots, not real traffic. And so yeah. that's one of the things that blockchain really has the potential to solve. Is there a way of quantifying good views, quality views, and irrelevant views. You know, you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, I know exactly of, what okay. you're saying. Well, and so the first thing is, can you quantify real humans, right? I mean, so almost by definition, a bot or a robot or some kind of automated account is not a real view. And, and that's a huge problem in the industry right now. So that's the first and most important thing. And by the way, what Facebook and Twitter and all the other social platforms are really spending a lot of time is trying to get the bot traffic out of there because it really artificially inflates metrics. It adds a whole dynamic of, of fraud and, and sort of just, frankly, bad business to those platforms. Then the next step of what you're saying is, okay, well, not all views are created equal, right? The drive-by viewer versus somebody who's really engaged in your content. And, and I think most media outlets like to think of that in terms of some kind of subscription funnel. How do I take my most active viewers and, and try to convert them into some kind of paying subscriber? I just want to follow up on something you said having to do with bots and sort of what? Uh, shadow activity that doesn't really exist and advertisers right. are paying for it and publishers you are looking it. for it. What, what's the big deal? If you buy, if you, if, you know, there used to be this time when if you got to be a vice president at a major corporation, you would get a subscription to a newspaper, let's say the mm -hmm. Wall Street Journal, right? And then you'd go into these buildings and you would see a pile of them <laughs> thrown at the elevator banks. What's the difference whether they read it or not? As long as they buy the subscription. Well, for a subscription business, I mean, ultimately, if somebody's willing to pay, I mean, that's the judge. If it's yeah, not a I real mean, human that, and they have a credit card, right, then but, maybe you're okay with that. But, but isn't that the same point when you're talking about online subscriptions? In well, other words, someone has to subscribe or at least give their email or some personal data, which some marketer somewhere in the whole ether says, oh, yeah, this is valuable. I have 5,000 names or I have 50 million names. And we can now send them lots of junk mail. It's, it's about the way the industry works as opposed to the actual information, right? I mean, advertising used to work because you'd have an ad buyer who was told to go out and buy a certain CPM, a certain mm -hmm. cost per thousand, right? right? Yeah. That's all changed now because Google and Facebook have automated the actual activity. You never need, the advertising manager never needs to meet 
with Google or Facebook. They just type in the parameters of what they want, and then they buy as many clicks as they want, right? Yeah. Well, there's two things wrapped up in there. The first one, though, is important. I mean, if you're buying a million uh, access to a million people for 10 million impressions, and half of those are fraudulent, well, then there's a lot of waste built in, right? You're, you're paying for things you're not really getting, not real human views. But you do raise a really important point, which is the self-serve nature of these platforms, right? It's just, it's ridiculously easy. I can pull out my credit card right now and go buy $25 in Facebook advertising yeah. and, and reach you know, real human beings. And so I, Facebook and Google have built amazingly powerful technology platforms. The question is, is well, what about the companies that actually create the content yeah. <laughs> to populate those platforms? That's what we're trying to solve for. So, Chris, come on in here, because I know that social responsibility is a big focus of yours. And as we talk about identifying bots and identifying humans, it raises a really interesting question about the oversight of social media companies and sort of where do advertisers come in with respect to that? Where do regulators come into that, especially on the heels of the hearings we heard in Washington, D.C.? Well, it's the Wild West. I mean, it's just nuts. People, consumers have to be much more savvy about where they're getting information and the type of information they're getting. I think far too many people have been taken astray. But Lisa, when I look at, at, at social flow, your company, I, I don't understand how you make money in the middle of, you're going to charge consumers, you charge the advertisers for eyeballs. How does this all work? Well, so we make money by uh, sort of taking a slice of the money that we pass along to publishers. Our, our goal is to get the media companies paid, right? So that's what we do now. That's what we do in the future with blockchain. We work for 200 of the world's biggest media companies, including Bloomberg, in terms of getting their content out to the social platform. So what we want to do is enable those companies to be paid more. And then we'll take a slice of that. That's how we'll make our money. And, and if we succeed and do well, the advertisers get real value, the consumers get real value, the media companies get real value, and of course we get real value as compensation for, for pulling it all together. Lisa, that's one of the things that drives me nuts. When you think about the social media world, they're focused on eyeballs. Yeah. Eyeballs are more engaged when they're fearful. And so that's why I think, while they won't want to admit it, they're in the business of pumping out fear and pumping out negative news so yeah. that people may have more attention. I don't know that advertisers really want to be associated with that emotion. If I'm angry about reading an article and then suddenly an ad for Home Depot pops up, I don't know that that's a good thing. Well, except that if, you, if you've got a lot of eyeballs clicking on your pages and you tend to have a lot of horrific stuff, People, will, more people will probably come. I mean, we've seen that time and time again, right? The more catastrophic kinds of stories, the ones that get more attention. Uh, the more viewership is is good viewership no i mean is there i guess that this raises a question is there a delineation between sensationalized news and you know drier news that might cater to people who perhaps are, are better educated or, or, or sort of more in the industry I, I definitely think there is but chris let me say this i mean facebook made last quarter what 14 billion dollars in revenue so uh, you know, the proof is in the delivery i don't disagree with your point sensationalized you know clickbaity and and sort of more tragic stories are not particularly brand safe or advertising friendly and you ask the Home Depot example no Home Depot does not want to be associated with stories about terrorism or crime or those types of things uh, but do but they really care if people are clicking on them do they really care they do they, they do I mean no, no brand manager is going to be comfortable with that if for no other reason than when somebody points it out it's just sort of appalling on a, on a human level what are you doing advertising against tragedy it happens it, clearly I mean it, it happens a lot in the digital advertising ecosystem but if you ask any of these brand managers they certainly would much prefer to be associated with content about puppies and kittens and picnics and ha happy occasions would, would certainly be the preference. 
we want to thank uh, Jim Anderson. He is the uh, chief executive of Social Flow for uh, enlivening us with the discussion about advertising and blockchain. You're listening to Bloomberg. Hurricane Florence has caused over a million people to evacuate as this dangerous hurricane bears down on the east coast of the United States. Here to tell us more about the effects of the hurricane and the hurricane itself is Jeffrey Flynn. He is our insurance industry analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And we also have with us Brian Sullivan, uh, energy and commodities reporter for Bloomberg News. Brian Sullivan, let's begin with you. You join us from our 1061 Boston Newburyport Station, uh, studio rather, in uh, Boston. And can you give us an update on where the uh, the hurricane is tracking and some of the details, wind speed and so on? All right. So the hurricane's about 900 miles away from Cape Fear in North Carolina, and it's got wind speeds of 130 miles an hour. That should get a little stronger as it nears North Carolina. Um, there's some interesting things buried in the forecast this le- last update, and that is that it may weaken a quite you know, a, a bit before it get actually gets on the coastline. So it may not come ashore as a Category Four, but um, meteorologists are warning everyone that because of its large size and the fact that it's been sitting out there such a long time, the devastation really can't be measured by a Category uh, One, Two, Three, Four. Jeffrey, come on in here because I love your impression on what's at stake, which insurance companies are most potentially on the hook, what the potential damage might look like, and uh, whether most of it's insured or not. Yeah, no, it's um, it's interesting. Actually, um, you know, looking at the exposures in, in North Carolina and, and Virginia and South Carolina, um, actually the mutuals are, are probably going to take non-publicly traded firms may kind of see the largest losses that I'm talking about. Um, you know, like State Farm, Nationwide, and USAA, they seem to have the highest market shares in, in those states of homeowners insurance. Um, you know, in terms of the publicly traded firms, um, Allstate and Travelers ha- have the most significant exposure um, there. They each write, um, you know, roughly $200 million of premiums in, in North Carolina. Um, so th- th- those two should probably stand out um, in the publicly traded uh, peer group. Those stocks are off about about 3% over the past week. Um, you know, and, and that... Um, that that kind of kind of jives with with kind of the losses that they might see um, on an industry wide perspective in terms of insured losses. It probably um, it, it, the higher the flooding flooding is typically not covered by standard homeowners policy. So um, the, the larger uh, percentage that flooding is of the total damages will kind of um, reduce the percentage of insured losses. But I think we're looking at kind of insured losses perhaps between um, five and ten billion, and I, I think damages. Economic damages may be as, as high as 20 to, t- to 25. Um, the industry has about um, 275 billion in total capital, excluding Berkshire. So, um, you know, a 10 billion dollar impact on the insured loss might be about 3% um, of industry of industry capital. One of the other smaller smaller companies, um, Assurant, a, a smaller, more mid cap insurance company, has some decent exposure in the region. So they they could also also be affected. But those are kind of the um, the ones you want to focus on. I understand this is a risk that this hurricane may stall over the Carolinas and then just dump rain. So who does bear the loss when it comes to flooding? Um, 
you know, and, and I'm sure Brian, Brian can comment as well, but it, it's largely going to go to the um, NFIP, the National Flood Insurance Program, and it, it, it obviously depends on how many, um, you know, in, in some of the more um, coastal regions, um, homeowners are required required to, to, to buy that insurance. The um, the um, in regions that are further away from the coast, um, but still at risk, a lot of times it, it's not purchased by homeowners. But but this all, uh, you know, that there's been a, a long sort of political history with with the national flood program, which is in, in debt pretty significantly. But but this should be, you know, to the extent that that homeowners do have national the NFIP coverage, it will be paid. Although taxpayers will, will obviously ultimately bear that as that program goes probably yeah. goes more into debt. Brian, can you just talk a little bit about the flood damage that could potentially happen, especially if the storm does stall out? Well, you know, you start to get flood damage away from the floodplains, and now you're getting into areas where people don't have flood insurance. So, um, you know, they're going to be on the hook for it themselves. And we've seen this uh, numerous times in these storms that the the, dr- the rain comes down, and it just swells the rivers up, you know, way beyond where they've ever been before. Um, uh, last year with Hurricane Harvey, for instance, a lot of people who were damaged by flood or had their homes destroyed by flood. Um, they didn't have insurance at all, so they were on the hook totally for it themselves. Brian, what kind of storm surge can we expect? Um, right now they're talking about a 12-foot maximum, um, which is definitely enough to um, cover your house. Thank you both for joining us. Really a pleasure to have both of you. Jeffrey Flynn, insurance industry analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence uh, from Skillman, New Jersey. Brian Sullivan, energy and commodities reporter for Bloomberg News. who will be keeping track of the storm as it approaches, coming to us from our Bloomberg 106.1 studio in Boston. Chris Ailman still with us of CalSTRS, chief investment officer. And uh, in, in the last moments of the show, I want to talk a little bit about this hurricane that's coming and the sort of expectation that we're going to get more major storms storms as the uh, climate does change. How is that affecting your investments, if at all? Um, it does, absolutely. Uh, we have already looked at rising sea levels and tried to start to factor that into real estate. I think the biggest change that we've seen is understanding that as the climate changes, we don't know how severely and at what what rate of time. Is this going to be a 2025 event, a 2030 event? The one thing we do know is more weather extremes, hot, cold, uh, and particularly with rain. The fact that it won't rain in certain parts, it create drought and stress, and then other areas will be deluged. So we're already starting to see infrastructure investments as governments recognize that and try and put that uh, infrastructure in place. But I think it's a higher risk that we've had to factor it in. You look at, and the insurance companies were definitely the leaders uh, when it comes to inter- interacting climate change with their forecast, but you already start to see other companies realize, like Coca-Cola and PepsiCo, they can't rely on water sources. They need to secure their own water. Um, you've started to see other companies factor that in. Despite all the hype and all the rhetoric about whether climate change is real, smart business people are factoring that into their risk models and managing it. And of course- in California, where you're based in Sacramento, wildfires, droughts, and then substantial rains, that's not a good combination. No, and the wildfires uh, are really uh, uh, horrific this season, and I think, unfortunately, we're going to be saying that every year, and all the way up to the northwest. 
Uh, we took our vacation up to Coeur d'Alene, uh, Idaho, and up into Spokane, and the air quality was honestly worse than it is in Beijing, China this year. And I was quite surprised to hear from people that said, you know what, every August we get air quality problems now. That wasn't true in the past, but the fires in British Columbia begin because of droughts and changes in patterns. You're starting to see the West Coast have uh, air quality issues. Right. Uh, we're traveling now looking at the AQI Air Quality Index. Thanks very much. Uh, Chris Aylman, always a pleasure. Much appreciated to spend time with us. Chris Aylman, our co-host today, Chief Investment Officer for Calsters. We look forward to having you in the future. Thank you very much. Great honor to be with both of you. This is Bloomberg. The widening gap between the highest earning in people in the world and the lowest earning ones has raised a lot of questions about the way that we value certain things. And our next guest argues that currently our economy values uh, that rewards value extraction rather than value creation. Mariana Matsukato, professor of the, of the economics and founder and director of the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose at the University College London, as well as the author of the new book, The Value of Everything, Making and Taking in the Global Economy, is here with us. And of course, Chris Aylman, uh, CIO of Calsters, is also with us today. Uh, Mariana, what do you mean about that, that our current economy uh, rewards value extraction rather than value creation? Well, what we need in order to drive uh, investment-led growth, and we should remember that that is the ideal kind of growth. We don't want growth to be uh, growing simply because of consumption, people taking out debt simply because their incomes aren't rising. Investment actually has a direction. Uh, we all talk about innovation. We want innovation to happen, but innovation actually requires long-term finance. Instead, we have a financial sector, which remains quite short-termist and speculative even after the financial crisis. And we have the real economy players, so in industry, think of IT, energy, and pharma, increasingly spending their profits in areas like share buybacks to boost stock prices, stock options, and surprise, surprise, executive pay. Now, what I argue in the book is that these practices are actually being rewarded. And these are not about creating value. They're really just moving around existing assets. And part of the blame, I think, is economic theory, where we basically assign value to what has a price. And this is a huge change from how value used to be debated over the last 300 years. So just think of Adam Smith's whole emphasis on the division of labor, technological change, Karl Marx as well, David Ricardo. They first thought about what is value and then used that to determine price. Today we have economic theory, which starts with prices and then uses that to determine value. And this is why, by the way, Lloyd Blankfein, after the financial crisis in 2009, said Goldman Sachs workers are the most productive in the world. So there's a tautology there. They're being paid a huge amount. That's how we actually measure value. So, of course, they are valuable. So how do we measure this, Chris Elman? How do we measure the uh, output? How do we measure that value and put the emphasis on that? Well, what's interesting is that some people for decades now have been arguing that there's a problem. So just think of GDP. If you marry your cleaner, GDP will actually go down because, you know, the cleaner maybe was being paid or hopefully was being paid. And then you marry him or her. And all of a sudden, um, they're still doing the same work, but they're not being paid. So GDP would go down because we only include in GDP those goods and services that have a price. Similarly, if firms pollute, 
GDP goes up <laughs> because we don't actually have a way to automatically, you know, uh, subtract those things that are bad. But as long as you pay to clean up the pollution, GDP will rise. Now, this is a well-known problem. What I argue is that the bigger problem is that because we've confused value extraction with value creation, we've also confused rents with profits. And much of what's in GDP is actually rent. And so before adding in different types of indicators that people are arguing for about well-being, I say, let's clean the house and get rid of the rent. So what is rent? Rent for the classical economists, again, who I mentioned before, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, Karl Marx, was basically unearned income. So different actors in the economy may be just playing some sort of intermediating role. Think of a troll under a bridge getting a, uh, some money, not really adding any value. And so because their theory of value was actually nested in objective conditions related to production, division of labor, technology, innovation, they could actually kind of make lists almost of who they thought was actually adding value and who was extracting it. Um, now, I don't think the point is about making lists and, you know, shaming anyone, but really rethinking how we can actually reform finance. So it is actually providing, for example, patient, long-term committed finance to industries to innovate versus making quite a bit of money just moving around existing assets. Just about a minute left. Is there any way that these ideas could be implemented without a widespread crisis that make people really rethink the entire financial system? Or is this just basically a theoretical uh, no, no. Result. I mean, it, to be honest, the reason I'm tired, besides the fact that I have four kids, is I <laughs> go around the world actually trying to turn this into practice. Um, a report we're writing, which will be out in a couple weeks, is about what does this mean, for example, for the pharmaceutical industry? Why are they getting away with charging ex you know, astronomical prices in the name of value? They actually have a, a formula called value-based pricing. But first of all, something like 75% of the drugs that are in the market were actually funded by the public sector, so taxpayers, through the National Institutes of Health. The prices being set do not take that into consideration. We also have, you know, all over the world, different types of uh, taxpayer-funded uh, investments that are then free-rided on top of. I just heard you talking about Tesla. Tesla received a $465 million guaranteed loan by the Department of Energy, the same amount, by the way, that Solyndra got. Solyndra went bust. The taxpayer came in to bail them out. Tesla, what happened there for the taxpayer? So really rethinking these things could actually turn into practical ways to make sure that we don't just have growth, but we have inclusive growth, innovation-led growth, and sustainable growth. I want to thank you very much for coming in and spending the time with us. Uh, Mariana Matsukato is uh, the author of Making and Taking in the Global Economy, The Value of Everything. Very interesting and uh, very well written. Thank Thanks you. Thanks very much for being here. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.